just remember, Steph, we've got to get this podcast favourably reviewed in the Catholic publications so that they listen to us. The best thing that could be done for this podcast is if they If the Pope denounces it. Welcome to Psychocinematic, a podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular film and TV. I'm your host, Stephanie Fanasia. I'll start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land that I'm recording from today. Uh, We recognise their continuing connection to the land and waters and thank them for protecting the natural environment since time immemorial. We pay our respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to First Nations people listening today. What are we doing today? Well, Michael, I don't know if you noticed, but our house is very spooky at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, it is very spooky. It's a very spooky house. There's spooks in the air. There's very many spooks. It is Halloween this weekend, or slash Monday, when you get this podcast. So today, we are doing our first Halloween film. Not so much a slasher horror as probably one of the scariest movies of all time. The foundation of all horror, as we know it. The only horror film. The... Exorcist. (laughs) How are you feeling about doing this one today? Very spooked. I don't want to get the curse. You don't want to get the curse. You don't want to get the demon inside you. It was the first horror nominated for an Oscar. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you know that? It came out in 1973 and it was directed by William Friedkin. And it was written by William Peter Blatty in Mm. 1971. Initially, the book was a flop, but then he went on the Dick Cabot show and they started talking about, like, imagine if God isn't real and if the devil could go inside you. And people were interested, and it became a bestseller. Dick Cavett is a kingmaker. What was your experience of this film, Michael? I had seen it once when I was, like, maybe 17, 18, and I was like, this is lame. I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) I remember everyone being very excited about the face in the range hood. Mm. I guess it was one of the earlier films to do, like, a subliminal image. Yes, yes. Um, Did that freak you out, though, when you saw it? No, I missed it. Oh. Like, I had to go back and this was a DVD. We had to, like, scan back. Like, I saw it and and didn't know it was going to happen when I first saw it, which was around the same age as you, and it freaked me out. That was the freakiest thing in it, Mm. I thought. Yeah. And I laughed at it at the time, too. (laughs) I mean, it's quite funny. (laughs) (laughs) I think now, watching it as a mother, it's much more harrowing than when you're a teenager. And mm. just like, everyone says this film's so scary, but it's not really. It's really silly. Like, putting myself into the mum's shoes or even you know, anyone else's shoes in the film now as an adult is actually, you know, it's pretty terrifying. Well, I think we'll have to unpack the Oedipal um, undertones <laughs> of that. Oh, I can't wait. But tell us about the plot. All right, so The Exorcist opens up with a sequence of an old pill-addicted, question mark, priest, Lancaster Mirren, undergoing an archaeology expedition in the Iraqi desert, uncovering and being disturbed by a statue of Pazuzu, the demon. Hail Pazuzu. We are then introduced to the characters living in Georgetown, Washington. Firstly, priest and Catholic psychiatrist Damien Karras, played by Jason Miller, who is having a bit of a crisis of faith as he cares for his elderly and later dying Greek mother. We also meet actress Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Bursting. Hello again, Ellen Bursting. Welcome back to the podcast. (laughs) Who is shooting a movie at the university. She's there with her daughter in a lush house, fit with servants. She's kind of casually dating the director. I don't know why he seems gross. She and her daughter, Reagan, played by Linda Blair, have a close, loving relationship with Reagan's dad out of the picture. It's Halloween, and Reagan shares with her mum a Ouija board that she found in the attic, which she uses to talk to someone called Captain Howdy. Can I just say, a demon called Captain Howdy is actually the most terrifying thing. Like, that name just is creepy. It is scary, and her dad's name is Howard. (gasps) Mm. Coming up to Reagan's birthday, things start to change as Reagan's behaviour shifts, particularly during a party where she wheezes on the floor, which Natasha Leone parodied in Scary Movie 2, and it's actually the funniest thing ever. (laughs) Scary Movie 2 is so funny. (laughs) I do remember it. I do remember it. It's quite funny. Her mother also finds her bed shaking. Around the same time, Father Karras' mother also takes a turn, resulting in her being admitted to a psych hospital and eventually dying, which causes a great guilt. Chris takes Reagan to the doctor and is given tranquilizers to calm her. They suggest some kind of seizure activity leading to muscular spasms and hallucinations before a convulsion, which is due to lesions in the temporal lobe. 
we see some really confronting brain scans that I'm pretty sure they don't do anymore. While they continue to treat her, Regan's behaviour worsens, requiring constant sedation. Finally, not finding anything in the copious scans, the doctors agree to look at psychiatry to explain her behaviour, suggesting a split personality in their words. Then the director, Bert Dennings, is found dead, having fallen from Reagan's bedroom window, his head having been twisted all the way around. Oh. It's believed that a large body pushed him out, but only Reagan was up there at the time. There's also been some desecrations of church uh, statues. Someone put an axe in the bulldog's head. <laughs> <laughs> they made me do it. Reagan is hypnotised by a psychiatrist where she starts growling and becomes violent. The doctor's last ditch suggestion is that she's experiencing a quote-unquote delusion that her body has been invaded by some alien intelligence or spirit. Pro's treatment being an exorcism stylized ritual with a rabbi or priest to drive out the spirit purely for suggestive purposes to enter her world and stop the delusion. Next comes the famous masturbating crucifix scene. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> and she starts slapping her mum around. So Chris agrees to meet with the priest. Enter Father Karras, who is dragged in reluctantly and explains that exorcisms are rarely performed due to learning about mental illness. But he does meet Reagan. I will just interject to say that Karras is both a priest and a psychiatrist. Yes. He's a bit of a Dana Scully. A bit of a Dana Scully. Double threat. There's an obvious explanation for this Mulder. <laughs> He needs to seek evidence to prove that they need a exorcism. Reagan starts to talk about Karis's mother being in hell and projectile vomits green bile at him, which is really fun. Karis throws fake holy water on her, which she writhes and reacts to as if it was real, which suggests that she's faking it. But then, after a message of help me being scrawled on Reagan's stomach, he agrees to the exorcism with help from the old priest we saw at the beginning of the film, Father Marin. Here comes Marin. He turns up, <laughs> appearing quite sick and struggling, but uh, together with Karis, they start the exorcism. We see lots of fun, gross effects, twisty head around, <laughs> and also lots of homophobic slurs that come from Reagan's mouth. And they continue to say, the power of Christ compels you. Reagan's demon attacks Karis with his guilt about his mother, pretending to be her at one point. Demon. Why are you doing this to the demon? <laughs> Why? And it stops Karis from being able to focus. Marin sends him away, but when Karis is back... I just want to jump in. Yeah. I forgot to mention that my earliest experience in this <laughs> film was my older brother and sister saying, Demi, please, to each other when I was a child, and I had no idea what it meant. Actually, and my nana had a VHS of oh. The Exorcist. and <laughs> I. I know. Yeah, and I used to terrify myself when I was like five by looking at the back cover because it had a picture of her all cut up and scabby. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I, it really, really scared me. Oh, wow. So, yes, when Karis comes back, Marin is dead. <gasps> Karis strangles Reagan, which seems to get the demon to go into him out of Reagan, and then Karis either jumps out the window or is thrown out of the window by the demon. An undetermined amount of time later... Karis's friend, who roped him in, visits Chris and Reagan, and Reagan looks fine and doesn't remember a thing. Reagan gives the other priest a little kiss, oh. and that's the end. I think it's quite a taut little film. Oh no, it's got like a it's it's quite contained, but you know, mm. lots of things. Oh, yeah, lots of little bits and pieces. Yeah, sure. Anyway, let's talk about lived experience. I wanted to start with Linda Blair because she was such. A, a splash like everyone was like fuck me Linda Blair what the fuck this kid is amazing were people really like fuck me they like, did fuck well, me <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the bits that I thought was funny when I was <laughs> but let me tell you about how she came about she came in to audition on a whim with her mother she'd done some modeling and she'd actually read the book she was pretty young at the time I think 11 or 12 oh my um, god and because she knew what masturbating was, the director's like, yeah, she can handle it. Uh, will. <laughs> and, like, she did a great job. I think they really tried to make it, you know, fun for her. Like, there's photos of her uh, you know, after the medical scene, like, laughing with a milkshake in her hand and stuff, um, mm. which is great because it would have been pretty traumatic, the things that she goes through. But the film did really impact her life uh, quite significantly. She didn't really go on to do anything super like mainstream blockbustery there was a lot of rumors after the film that she had a mental breakdown and she got lots of death threats Gee, because you know 
religious people. So they took her on a big press tour to prove that she was a quote-unquote normal teenager just living her life. <laughs> that is not a normal teenager thing to do. But anyway, she also, before she turned 18, she was dating so many much, much older men. She dated Rick Springfield when she was 15 and he was 25. Oh, and man. when I say date, I'm putting quotations around it because that's statutory Rick, my friend. Rick Springfield, wow. Jessie's Girl is a great song. <laughs> but, you know, that's a huge age gap and she wasn't even yeah. 16. He's Australian. Is he? Let's not talk about Rick Springfield No, Rick Springfield is cancelled now, though. Uh, that was very common at the time, but like she mm. did a lot before she turned 18. Yeah. And when she was 18, she was arrested for drug possession and conspiracy to sell drugs. Mm. Um, she then, because of that, had to make at least 12 major public appearances to tell young people about the dangers of drug abuse. Don't, <laughs> do, don't do drugs, kids. But her biggest stuff after that was lots of TV movies where she plays a wayward teen, like swearing people off drugs and sex and things like that. Right. Those kind of after-school specials. So she had the lived experience for her later work, but not <laughs> yes, so much for so. this one. I Except that she knew what masturbating is. Yeah, which means clearly she's, she was right for part. <laughs> Obviously she did a fantastic job. Like, you can't fault her. In this day and age, they just cast, like, Robert De Niro and, and de-age <laughs> him. <laughs> or Brad Pitt. <laughs> But yeah, I don't, obviously there's not a lot there in terms of lived experience because she's young, but I just thought it's really interesting to hear what happened to her after this film. Mm, yeah. I do want to also talk to you about the voice actor for Reagan. Oh, yeah. As the demon. Because this is kind of like, we'll get to William Freakin, the director soon, but he was kind of called New Hollywood mm. and he very much um, pushed people to do things like push to get the best out of things and, you know, anything anything at all for the best take sort of thing. Yeah. So this is an example of that. Mercedes McCambridge was hired to be the voice actor because um, she was very good at making this kind of gross noise. She told William Friedkin to do this part. She would need to uh, start smoking cigarettes again and drink again because that gave her that sort of throaty croak, mm. which she had given up. She was an alcoholic. And she sort of turned into a Catholic. She was very um, religious. And she also had to swallow raw eggs to make her voice mucusy. So right. she went through a lot. She had to kind of go back, backwards in terms of her sobriety to make this, this part. That's really fucked up. That's pretty fucked. Like, I felt very sad when I read that. Yeah. Like, just cast somebody else. Just, obviously it worked really well. But if it's the voice wasn't 100% as good as that, it still would have been great for Yeah. It's a movie, Mercedes and William. Apparently, after each take, she just collapsed into tears. And she, she asked for a priest to be on call for her afterwards to sort of help her out. So she went through a lot. Yeah. Poor thing. Yeah, fuck. The things that people make you do. For a movie, it's, it means nothing. Yeah, we don't care about them. I mean, it, um, it makes me think of the films of Peter Strickland. Barbarian Sound Studio. <laughs> um, for anybody who's seen yes. it, there's some really great voice acting. Maybe we should it. just do a full episode of <laughs> I just want to need to let it out. Let's talk about it. Okay, William Let's talk about Friedkin. Willie. Did you look up anything about Willie? Like, I mean, the main thing that I came across was, yeah, that, that he was really invested in um, the realism of the film, both yes. in terms of the science and the religious ritual aspects of things. Mm. Um, I didn't get much about him having any mental illness or, or anything. No, same. I did read that he believes that he's seen some shit uh, in terms of exorcism. Um, mm. Well, he researched the actual process of obtaining a Catholic exorcism, right? Yes. He used to, as I said, he directed a lot of comedy movies, but he had read the book um, and saw, he believed that he had seen someone who was going through an exorcism himself. But right. he didn't bring his film camera to, to film it, so he could only describe what happened. But he has some sort of sense of faith, and he wanted to do the film because he believes in the story, and the film is about the mystery of faith. But he also said that he tells people that the exorcist is about uh, an uplifting tale about being able to love a stranger so much that you're willing to die for them. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> one reading of it, I yeah, guess. I guess. Um, maybe, yeah, sure. It sounds like he may not have the lived experience, but he's certainly given some other people 
some lived experience yes. for future roles. He did a lot of, uh, and he also did a lot <laughs> yeah. And yes. he kind of, um, you know, he was quoted as saying, like, the best thing that could happen with our film is that the Pope denounces, um, denounces it. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think he was quite instrumental in encouraging all of those sort of um, apocryphal stories about people vomiting in the theatre and mm. probably the voice actor for the devil needing priests and things like that. I'm sure he and the um, advertising execs at Warner Brothers kind of whipped, whipped those oh, things up a yeah, bit. yeah, they definitely did. Mm. Absolutely. And they also whipped up the Catholic Church not liking the film yeah. because actually they were kind of cool with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was just some priests that didn't like it. Mm, mm, um, which most is of the enough. time they were like, oh, promoting it, of course. Yeah. But he, did you ever see Bug? No. It's a movie with Michael Shannon. It's a movie where it's it's about that sort of folie à deux. Okay, so know. this is a... F- this is a folie you uh, could, plusieurs. You could you could claim that you could, and what that means is when one person's sort of uh, psychosis or hallucination is shared um, by two people, and he has what seems to be quite paranoid schizophrenic sort of delusions. And Ashley Judd, so Ashley Judd ends up believing all the things that he believes, and right. they both sort of end up in this just spiraling psychosis. Um, ah, interesting. So he's very much drawn to films of reality versus mental illness. Yeah. Um, and it being shared. And but he doesn't have the lived experience to back it up. No, he just is just interested. That we can tell. Let's talk about William Adur, William Peter Blatty. William Peter Blatty, he wrote this book based on a real-life non-fiction account of an exorcism that happened to a 13-year-old boy at a psychiatric clinic in 1949 but he couldn't get all the details of what had happened so he had to dramatize the story quite a bit so it was changed to a girl instead of a boy and a couple of other details as well but according to William Freakin the the child grew up having no memory of what happened and went on to have pretty good life and retired as someone who worked he worked at NASA well it seems that he respectfully researched a real case Yes, he did. I think the the name and the details of the case have emerged since then. Must must be. I saw. I read the name somewhere. I, I didn't read the specifics. He was an immigrant. Uh, he was born to immigrants from Lebanon, and his mother, his father, left home when he was six, and his mum supported them both. Um, Is this William Peter Bloody? Yeah. All oh, right. Um, and they changed their address constantly. His mum was a church going Catholic, and he went to lots of religious schools. I guess there's some parallels there, um, particularly it sounds like Reagan probably sh- moves a lot with her mum, father not being around, things like that. So, Next. Next. Ellen Burstein I won't go into because we heard quite a bit about her experiences with trauma um, when we did Requiem for a Dream. True fact, didn't realise this was Ellen until I fi- finished watching the film and was like, oh my god, <laughs> we just watched her and Our there she friend. is and she's really young. Her character apparently in this film was based off Shirley MacLaine. Oh, get out. Well. Shirley MacLaine is the one with the 10,000-year-old husband. Yes. I got confused. You got confused. Uh, Ellen Burstein's husband had uh, quite severe schizophrenia, um, and it, we talk about it in Wrecking for a Dream, but he was quite abusive towards her. Oh. When she left him, he uh, stalked her, raped her, and then ended his life by suicide. Really extreme, dramatic behaviour. Fuck. Yeah. Pretty awful. So she's been through a lot. Um, that would have been after this film, though, I'm pretty sure. And then I sort of read about Max von Van Sydow, who died two years ago. Recently, yeah. Um, everyone just says he's a very lovely man. Jason Miller uh, couldn't really find much about him either. He was a playwright and yeah. wasn't really usually an actor, but was brought in for this film. Um, There's a lot of people it, like that in this movie. Well, kind apparently... Kind and then... Never. William Freakin struggled to find popular actresses and actors for this film, so he really went with unknowns at the time. Right. Did they think it was too grubby to be I in? I think so. I think mm. people struggled, he struggled to get people to be interested. Sure. Yeah. But uh, there is a lot of, as you were sort of alluding to before, there's a rumour that it was a cursed set. Mm. So Ellen Burstyn ruined her back, like, 
pretty cro- chronically. Really? Apparently. Uh, like, like stuff to her tailbone. Mm. Max von Sydow's brother died on the actor's first day of shooting. And Jason Miller's young son was struck and nearly killed by a man on a motorbike. But he recovered fully. And the actor who played the alcoholic filmmaker died from the flu before the movie was released. God. Who And he's the one who died in the actual film. Yeah. Um, and that was the last role for him. So, hmm. Last role for him. No more roles, no for, more you, roles Jack. for you, Jackie. <laughs> Shit. Um, also, the the fire the set was lit on fire one day. And they... Oh my goodness! Or maybe someone was looking in the attic, on the studio, and a candle went. Um, so there's lots of other things that people say means this this thing was cursed. And in terms of lived experience or research, they did have a consultant on set. Uh, Father John J. Nicola, who served as a credited advisor for the movie. Um, for the Catholic side of things, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, but he staged his own small protest by resigning as an actor. He was originally president of Georgetown University. Right. Um, but he didn't want to do that, so he, he disagreed with William Freakin over some of the desecration, religious deities sort of thing. Sure. In, in, the, in the masturbation scene. Yeah. Um, so he he protested by not being an actor, but he was still a consultant. Yeah, sure. <laughs> he, he, he um, Friedkin uh, consulted with heaps and heaps of people. There were radiologists and mm-hmm. neurologists and all kinds of people involved, um, which was apparently one of the first times that that had really happened in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, he, um, all the scans that we see, and I, like, asked you, is this what you would do? And you're like, no. But then reading into it, he actually did a lot of research into what would medical professionals actually do when they're looking into Reagan's symptoms. Mm. And the scans that they did, the the, um, weird contraptions were accurate. So Mm. glad we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. They're pretty fucked up. We briefly interrupt this episode with a little bit of an ad spot. I want to tell you about an amazing podcast that really fits in with what we do here on Psychocinematic, which is smash stigmas, break down unhelpful beliefs and societal expectations, particularly for women. And you know I'm a big feminist and this is one of those incredibly feminist podcasts. If you like inspiring stories that help you see new possibilities for your life and remind you that anything is possible, lean in and listen to the Reinvention Rebels podcast. Host Wendy Battles shares stories of brave and unapologetic women between 50 and 90 years young who have reinvented themselves in bold ways. From travelling solo around the world with a carry-on bag at 60 to running in global marathons at 71 – to launching a modelling career at 72 and going strong at 75. So iconic. These women are bravely making their dreams a reality. Wendy shines a light on the notion that we can reinvent ourselves at any age or any stage and is helping to disrupt limiting beliefs about the value of ageing women in our society. Reinvention Rebels are fierce and fabulous women living their best lives with joy, passion and curiosity. Soak up their sage wisdom and lean into new possibilities for reimagining your own life, no matter your age. How fucking fabulous. Thanks for that little segue. Now back to the episode. So let's look at some accuracy. I reckon we could read for a million years about the history of exorcism. Did you read anything, Michael Michaelly? <laughs> I didn't really read too much about it, except to say that it's a thing and the Catholics still kind of did it, rarely. Mm. So I think, like, you know, as, as he did do pretty accurate research in the film... Since the invention of mental mental health support and psychiatry, exorcisms aren't usually something that anyone does, including, you know, back then in the 70s. In order to get official approval for an exorcism, the subject needs to meet the set criteria, needs to be considered to be suffering from possession, infestatio, mm. and under demonic control. And some of the first indicators are intense dislike for religious objects and supernatural powers. I have both of those things. So they're levitating. Um, but, yeah, obviously some of the things that would have been considered as 
demon possession. Obviously are not, such as schizophrenia, um, other sort of mood disorders or um, severe mental illnesses, epilepsy as well and seizures yeah. um, might have been construed as demon possession. But then, like, I think they do have some kind of objective non-psychiatric criteria, like speaking in a language that they don't know. Mm. Like, there's no mental illness that causes that. Maybe when that happens, it is possession. And also, like, yeah, the supernatural powers, levitating and things like that. Yeah. You know, if you, if gonna, if you see that, if you're gonna twist your refer to around. an exorcist. <laughs> And you're probably, you're probably possessed by demon. Mm. There's been at least one awful uh, case, which has been widely reported on, of a young girl who was um, inappropriately exercised in the 70s when she was actually suffering from, I don't like to use the word suffering, but it sounds like she was really having a really rough time, temporal lobe epilepsy. Uh, Annalise Michelle, there's actually a movie that uh, does that fictionalises it called The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Right. Starring Laura Linney, my fave. <laughs> so when she was 16, she experienced quite a few seizures. She was diagnosed with depression as well. Um, by the time she was 20, she had become intolerant of religious objects and began to hear voices. Despite medication, her condition worsened. She became suicidal. Her symptoms weren't improving, so her family was convinced that she was possessed by a demon. Uh, they eventually got permission for an exorcism from the Catholic Church. They started conducting exorcism sessions. They, she, they ended up doing 67 exorcism sessions. Wow. Um, she stopped eating. She died of malnourishment and dehydration. And as you'll see in the film, if you've seen the exorcism of Emily Rose, I can't remember how it ends, but the two Roman Catholic priests were found guilty of negligent homicide. But they were only sentenced to six month in jail so yeah like that's an example of how it could be extremely dangerous yeah to but... treat someone for religion uh, for demon possession when they are actually unwell yes yeah. cause their death mm, fuck christ hate it hate it i don't like that story step no it's not good sorry content warning <laughs> so i guess I think it's also really important to understand the context of the exorcism. So you were about to talk about how it was so terrifying for people. It was sort of when this movie came out, we were looking at sort of the end of the 1960s and the US Catholic Church was emerging from the end of a long period of cultural control as movie censors. So they weren't able to sort of censor and control what movies were sort of released. Um, the, the authority that the Catholic Church ha felt it had over society and its values was continuing to decline. They, they had, do you know about, there was like the whole production code where films could just be basically blocked if they displayed anything that was regarded as kind of immoral. Mm -hmm. This extended to things like if there was a couple sitting on a bed, one of them had to have their foot on the floor, mm -hmm. things like that. And, and really, you know, horrible things like not being able to t depict... Um, people of different races yeah. um, in a relationship and things like that. And then that kind of crumbled with the counterculture and things in the 60s, but then the church still wanted to control films. Yes. And I think um, that Friedkin's, like, um, liaising with the church and things was kind of like they saw their yeah. a bit of a window to, yeah. to yeah. maintain a little bit of control. Yeah. Um, and because they had... You know, they published all these, um, they had all these publications to um, explain to religious folk, like, oh, this movie, um, you shouldn't see it because it's immoral. Mm. This movie, it's not, it's it's fine, you go see it. So directors and studios were approaching the church to be like, hey, we want to make this movie. How can we get a good review from you guys? Yeah, yeah, and I guess in terms of, like, it gave the Catholic Church some more relevance back as well. Yeah. Being able to do that. Because kids were allowed to see this film. Like, kids were allowed <laughs> to go into the cinema and watch this film. Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the church, I think they were a little bit more hesitant. Than what but I it was really, like, split. I think their official stance was, like, yeah, probs not. Yeah. But then they they had, like, an internal publication where they got the opinions of lots of different priests and whatever, officials, and... 
and like some of them were condemned it and others were like, yeah, you know, this let's talk about this stuff. Yeah. You know, is yeah. there good and evil? That's that's our bread and butter. Because as a result, it was like everyone was, wanted to talk about it. So yeah. it sort of put the Catholic Church back on the map. Back on the map. <laughs> yeah. And they just had this, like, renovation of their whole vibe. They call it the Vatican II, apparently. This was in 68, I think. Mm-hmm. And they re- they reset their mission, like, we want to make the Catholic Church relevant again. We want to work with other denominations. And, yeah, I think this kind of fed into that. And, yeah, after this movie came out, everybody wanted to get exercised. Yeah, there was a huge spike of people um, requesting exorcisms or complaining of being possessed. Uh, I think what I read as well is that it was trying to critique the binary of science versus religion because at the same time all this new technology was coming out too and medical intervention, um, which is very key of what... William Freakin was trying to show is this is what all these doctors are doing to try and determine what's going on with Reagan. And as we said, he paid a lot of attention to the medical accuracy to sort of show, you know, we're looking at things binary in terms of is it science, is it religion, can't be one or the other, and it has to be science because we live in a scientific world. And so it was opening the doors of thinking, well, actually, maybe, maybe it could be religion, it could be demon possession. Mm. Um, I do think, though, that it's the film is binary because it's saying, no, it's not science, it's religion. I, it, it, it is kind of, yeah, it, 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 it is examining that. And it's, it's interesting because the book and the film are quite different. The book is more about whether is it a possession or is it psychiatric. Mm, mm. And in the end, the book pretty um, unambiguously comes down on it being psychiatric. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that thing that... Um, the doctors say suggest that Reagan is experiencing um, the the actual term for it is clinical catadenomania, <laughs> which is where the patient believes they're possessed, a delusion that may be quote unquote treated through the stylized ritual of exorcism. Is that what they're saying is happening in the book? She's actually got that condition. Uh, I like that would be the name of the symptom that she's exhibiting, um, but it's probably characteristic of well i i guess it's some sort of psychosis yeah is what you'd call it yeah um the articles that i was reading was calling it hysteria but they they were all coming at it from a freudian kind of perspective which you know you can say (laughs) what you like how old were those articles last year oh no you don't use that word anymore no but like no i i know that we don't (laughs) and i don't think they would use it clinically either i think it's more you know freud psychodynamic stuff is weird but they they do the exorcism because they're like trying to feed into the delusional structure and be like you were possessed and now we've done the thing that fixes possession and so so you must must be be fixed if this is all in your head then you must believe it's fixed and i guess there's a there's a um case for that of joining the client in their world in their sort of delusion to get them out of it Mm. there's a case for it i don't know how it works clinically if people I think I've always been told not to encourage, not encourage. I but think there's, there's, there's a way and a systematic way of doing it. Mm. There's like CBT I, for I psychosis yes. where you'd be like, oh, right, so you believe you're possessed. Here's the evidence for and here's the evidence against. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. It's a thing. I, I mean, I don't, just don't know. I'd be interested in hearing the evidence behind that, but, you know. Mm. I think on this point I'll mention that... There's a psychiatrist out there who believes in demonic possession and wrote a book about it. Interesting. Um, His name is... Yeah, Richard Gallagher. Um, Yeah, so Richard Gallagher, he wrote a book um, that was very popular. It was quite recent, maybe even last year. And he believes that, you know, sometimes there are some things that are unexplained and he attributes that to demon possession. And he quotes a lot of experiences that people have told him, nothing firsthand. Uh, he, like, a colleague, a few colleagues have seen people levitate. So clearly <laughs> that's correct. And sure. Like, okay, mate. You know, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, well, sometimes you can't explain something. Maybe this is accurate. Maybe we should give him, you know, agree with him. And, you know, he's got lots of cre- credentials and accolades. Mm. And only attributes unexplained to specifically Catholic religion. Right. Very white, very no ethnocentric. Centric. That's 
sorry, my brain's not working. I mean, but, like, to be fair, in his defence, and I'm not defending him, <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. to play devil's advocate. <laughs> oh, no. Um, you did it. He, you know, we don't have the tools to detect demonic possession. And well, you know what if you, does. what if you, you what if you have a psychosis? It doesn't respond to anything. Maybe it's possession. Uh, I I don't believe that. But then when you've got a person like Annalise Michelle, who okay, yeah. it didn't respond to anything, so we'll do this very traumatic uh, exorcism, yeah. and it kills her. Yeah, yeah so it could yeah. be quite dangerous. No, I I, I I don't stand by what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> it's just more an interesting point. It's an interesting point. The the, the other thing, kind of in a similar vein, that's kind of funny is like. And this is still kind of true today where, like, somebody presents with something unusual. Hmm. They're hearing voices, abnormal psychomotor behaviour, like, you know, query levitating, speaking in other (laughs) languages and stuff. You do, you rule out the medical first. Yes. So this person would go for probably a lumbar puncture. They'd have brain imaging. Which is what happens to Reagan. Yeah, and if nothing was found, they'd be like, oh, okay, I don't know, psychiatrist. And then psychiatrist works them up. Nothing works. And then they're like, oh, I don't know, Catholic priest. (laughs) (laughs) It's just funny that that's kind of the hierarchy. Like, psychiatry is below medicine. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought that was interesting in the film where they say to Chris, um, her mum, uh, I see the temptation to go to psychiatry, but you need to rule out medical. And I said, and you know, my psychologist's head was like, "What do you mean? What do you fucking mean? Psychiatry's great." It's true, though, and like I saw, but yeah, it would make sense. I saw a talk at a conference recently about how like lots of people with psychosis respond to immunosuppressants. Yeah, meaning like that there may be some sort of immune cause mm. of these things that are you know pretty um, rigidly felt to be. Psycho. Entirely psychogenic. So the, the the whole dichotomy thing that the exorcist is exploring is still really relevant. Absolutely, um, yeah. And even though the technology that they're using is outmoded, um, it's still a, a, an open debate. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, I think it's a debate we're having quite currently because we're sort of, sort of starting to stop seeing things as like you have this diagnosis or that diagnosis you don't have both or you don't have in between you know even in my head I was always told that you know you can have autism you can have ADHD but you can't really have both and now I'm starting to see that actually you absolutely can have both mm. I've been seeing it for a while but because you know, neurodivergence is more than just one thing or the other that's not how a brain works it's not how humanity works yeah yeah Mm. we're moving away from the silos we are thank god but not all of us sadly i do think that after such a traumatic experience there might be an inaccuracy that reagan seems completely fine after going through all of that she would have had some serious physical harm by the end of the film yeah I mean, there's some pretty obvious stereotypes that this movie creates. One obvious one is mental illness equals demon possession. Yeah. Which, as we sort of already described, was once upon a time suggested. Um, And it does sort of bring it back to maybe you're just possessed by a demon instead of having a legitimate mental illness mental health condition yeah what are your thoughts well yeah like um the movie basically 99 percent says this is a demon possession yeah um the only thing that kind of casts any doubt on it is the fact that she responds to the fake holy water yeah so um father Karras throws holy water on possessed reagan and she reacts like she's being burnt alive and things but and why then... does she do that because the devil lies Ah, uh, okay, right. <laughs> yeah. So the devil, yeah, right, okay. Well, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, it's like you can't yeah, forgot the about that. Lies. Yeah, yeah, it's true, devil lies. Devil lies. Whereas, yeah, in the book, but it sounds like the movie was quite faithful to the book in terms of what um, happens, but, like, Chris Chris can't be certain that she sees Reagan's head spin around in the book, mm-hmm. um, and there's a, a book about... Um, demon possession that Reagan reads. Oh, so it's a bit more ambiguous. Yeah, it's much more. And and in the end he comes down and says this is psychiatric. Oh, wow. Um, Blatty does. So, like, I I guess the film is kind of trying to say, the film is very conservative. Yeah. It's very much about, like, trying to reestablish these 
you know, powerful structures that are losing their um, mm. relevance yeah. in, in the 70s. Yes. So, you know, like... The fact that Chris is a woman and she's the mother of a daughter and she's a divorced woman, she's an actress, she's a working mum, she's sort of in control of her life. Mm. And it's almost like the, the demon coming in is like, no, fuck you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then having to rely on men to deal with that situation too. So it's not only just conservative in terms of religion uh, and the Catholic Church having asserting some control, it's also just generally the patriarchy asserting some control. It's ev- it, it is literally Feminism. everything. It's literally everything. Yeah. Because so you've got, yeah, mum mum divorced and working. Yeah. Um, and, and the first time that Reagan starts um, acting out is after a conversation where it's kind of suggested that um, Chris is dating the mm. director. Yeah, and um, Reagan and, being like... Well, Reagan is scared of having her father replaced. Yeah. Um, and that's when shit kind of starts yeah. trickling into the fans. It's true. I think it's also the fact that Reagan's starting to explore as well because after the Ouija board as well. Yeah. And she's sort of... Um, you know, it's like a teenager getting curious about yeah. the outside world and that's punished. Yeah. She's punished for that. Well, And so, then she goes and makes after-school specials in real life. <laughs> um, and like I said earlier, Captain Howdy, who's mm. the spirit that she meets in the Ouija board, Yeah, her dad's name is Howard. Yeah. So the dad has left the picture mm-hmm. and she, you can read it as if she's trying to find a replacement dad. And she's choosing Captain Howdy slash the demon the devil. who enters inside her. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. So can I? Can All we right. talk Oedipus? Let's talk Sorry, Oedipus. Let's talk Oedipus. It's the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room. So I didn't know. I didn't know too much about the Oedipal thing, except that it was like children perceive themselves as the rival of their same sex parent mm-hmm. for the affection of the parent of mm-hmm. the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. I could have told you. I Sorry, <laughs> but there's a concept w- with female children that there's a pre-eatable complex which is a really really tight connection with the mum and it's kind of the role of the father in this paradigm Mm. to separate that close attachment Mm -hmm. and to establish the normal eatable thing Mm -hmm. which would occur around reagan's age perhaps uh, I, I don't really know when it happens. There's this idea in Freud that for women the resolution of the eatable complex takes ages, but I think Freud also kind of hated women. So. Also, Freud didn't believe in a non-binary. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. Which is why we don't, you know, use Freud's teachings. But psychoanalysis is still important. and It's important, but um, needs to be, uh, some things need to stay in the past. So, so, so what's the, happening? Yeah, in The Exorcist is um, that Reagan needs her dad, but mum has shunned him. Mm -hmm. And mum is also kind of perceived in this kind of 70s post-free love world. Mm. Chris is kind of perceived as a bad mum because she's working. She's not spending 100% of her time with Reagan. And she's trying to replace Reagan's dad with inferior alternatives so there's the director who's an alcoholic who reagan kills promptly yes um and then there's um the two priests who come in so karis um and um merrick merrin merrin um merrick and rosso (laughs) (laughs) she kills both of them too so like as soon as anybody starts trying to replace her father she wants and to replace her father. father. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. She wants to replace her father or to re-establish a relationship with her absent father, Captain Howdy. Mm. But she kills him. Yeah. Also, when she does try to replace her father with Captain Howdy, the devil, mm. she literally lets it inside of her. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's like Oedipal as fuck. It's very. And I'm cool. I'm so de- like read the articles um, that we refer to because I'm I'm absolutely botching the explanation of this. This sounds fucked. <laughs> it is fucked, but it's like it's very hard to deny. It's very psychodynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And 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 also like. But even taking the psychodynamicness out of it, it's got you know that sort of the metaphor of. Reagan getting older and wanting to assert her independence and choose who she lets in her life and 
you know, have some control over her mother and establish a, a father figure. Mm. Like, that yeah. is outside of psychodynamic Freudian Yeah, true, stuff. true. It's still uh, relevant. Yeah, time. yeah, for sure. And, I mean, the film, by today's standards, is so conservative because it, it basically says, like, no, 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 <laughs> that's the devil. Yeah, it's just actually like, the Like, if devil. your kids are acting out, if your kids are trying to establish independence, they need God. Yeah. Uh, and they need, she didn't they need their mum. She didn't have a period yet. She could have just been on a period. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, they need God and they need mum and they need a nuclear family. Yes. Yeah. But God is the, the dad, really. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to comment on, like, it's not really in, in the scope of the podcast, but it is very weird in this quite taut little film, you know... I call it little, but yeah. There's, like, three characters. It's set in one location, more or less. Mm-hmm. They spend a, quite a significant portion of its runtime in Iraq. Yeah. Like, and, and like, nothing really happens. Understand. Is that the old priest? Yeah, so it's... Bringing Mer- them demon to America? I, 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 re- I don't actually know. Like, do you know how Pazuzu actually comes to Georgetown. Sorry, I don't. Yeah, no, I, I don't either. So it, 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 it seems to me to kind of imply that there's some sort of foreign influence as well. Which is like it's this it's this Middle Eastern demon. Yeah. Like you know, we're letting in these foreigners into America and oh they're polluting God. our children and we need God to fix it. Yeah. Um Fuck. Yeah, so it's like kind of nasty in a lot of ways. Hugely. Whereas the book is a little bit more open-minded mm-hmm. i do think that there's also uh, i was reading that there's also the the sort of trope that her reagan's body is not hers yeah the female body the child female mm. body is not hers in the medical field it's not hers everyone's poking and prodding it yeah and in the religious field it's hers to be possessed and then excavated yeah, I love that excavated thing. It's like harkens to the archaeologist excavating for Pazuzu and exactly. yeah, yeah. Maybe that's that's why that bit's in there. But yeah, it's like the female like bodies. Long. <laughs> so long. The female body doesn't belong to the female. It belongs to men. Yeah, and men have to. Men are the people that work on it to put things in it or take things out of it. Yeah, yeah. Which is disgusting. But she does kill them. Yes. The men are the victims, they're also the perpetrators. Yeah. And they're also the saviors. Yeah, yeah, true. They are the ones with the autonomy. There's also I sort of thought, even though there's that big view of men in general, there's also the the sort of trope that doctors are quacks and they don't really know what they're doing. Even yeah. with all this technology at their hands. You know, yeah. she says, Eighty eight doctors and no one could give me an explanation. <laughs> Which yeah, like I mean it, it is so apparently this was one of the first times that the world had kind of seen these medical procedures mm. portrayed realistically. Yeah. And there's this whole, I don't believe this, but um, Friedkin kept saying, oh, the people are really mainly scared of the medical procedures. Yeah. I don't fucking buy that. Because a lot of people said, you know, they vomited and they, they fainted. A lot of people vomited and fainted in the cinemas and, you know, people would need to be carried away in ambulances and he attributed that to all the medical scenes, which are yeah. a bit disturbing. They're a bit much. Like the... Um, I can't remember what it's called. It's like a pneumoencephalogram. They they yes. inject dye into like directly into the the neck artery yeah. to get blood get dye into the brain. Some people faint when they see blood on screen though. I could I would believe that because you see blood spurting out of her neck. Yeah, but every movie's got blood spurting somewhere. Yeah, but it was even pretty... <laughs> it it wasn't in the context of like a you know a zombie eating a brain. It was yeah. like. A medical procedure yeah, it's and she's, not, like, it's, she's it's awake nasty. doing it. It is fast. So like even though he went to all these great lengths to consult with doctors and things, I think at, at the end of the day it, it, it's still in a sense it does kind of buy into those counterculture sort of ideas about not trusting the man. Mm. In this case the man is medicine. Yes. And it's and like science. well don't trust your children with these guys because they're going to you know, stick needles in their neck and yeah. freak them out, and yeah, exactly. and then they're not gonna they're not gonna get anywhere with it. Like they're just gonna torture her for nothing. Yeah, and she goes through all this pain. And when really all they need is a priest. Yeah, that's all they need. Mm. Yeah, and also there's there's a psychiatric hospital that we see in it, which is a bit of a mm. trope. 
Yeah. Maybe that was accurate though, given that he researched so much of other stuff. And I'm referring to the psychiatric hospital that Karis's mum goes to. Yeah. Jimmy's mum. Well, although it's it's full of women who look like they're actively dying and they're like yes. grasping at him and stuff. It's really classic yeah. um, institution type images that we've talked about With a lot no one in the potty. Sort of reassuring them or anything. Yeah. And and I think it's you know, it, it's A quite possible that that was realistic in the seventies. Mm. And B, Karis's arc is all kind of about feeling guilty about not being able to save his mum. Yeah. So he transfers that onto Reagan. Yeah. I mean since we're talking about it you know, when he when he goes out the window yeah. at the very end, yeah. there was an image of his mum. Is that in the version that we watched? Uh, I thought I saw something. Yeah, yeah I can't remember yeah, now. Yeah, I thought I saw it. Yeah, so he, like, yeah, he, he kills himself to, to save, save Reagan and that's and his redemption for, for his, fa- his perceived yeah. failure of, uh, for, to, to save his mum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it all, it's all in line with the plot. Um, but it is very othering and uh, a negative stereotype of psychiatric hospitals, which yeah. I'm sure hasn't helped. No. Particularly in this kind of film where we're saying, don't go to doctors, go to yeah. doctors. Yeah. It serves the story, though. It serves the story. Half a point for serving the story. Half a point. Well, not really, but no it does serve the story. Was this helpful for mental illness? No. No. <laughs> no, Big not at all. fat. No. No. Was it helpful for religion? Yes. <laughs> so apparently if they, the Catholic Church did attribute it to an upswing in priest and nun applications. <laughs> Sorry, the way you said that was like applying for a nun. Could I please? I would like one nun, nun, please. <laughs> one priest. Uh, the cardinal in New York preached about it from the pulpit and said great things about it. The head of the Jesuit order at the time, Father Pedro Arrupe, who was headquartered in Milan, had his own print and would show it to his fellow priests and bishops and cardinals. Yeah, in terms of there's a lot of Catholic people that thought it was good for religion. Protestants mostly hated it and protested it. Because it was Catholic. Because. As fuck. Yeah, I don't know how much that really tells us. Like, um, because, you know, the Catholics are pro it because at the end of the day it says you need Catholicism. Only Catholicism can save you from the scary things in the world like divorce and mental illness. Yes, how dare you get um, divorced. you know, Iraqi demons. Yeah. Slash Iraqis. Um... <laughs> But also it's got a child masturbating with a crucifix. Yes. And some very um, spicy language. Quite spicy. Lots of C words. Like, had the world ever heard a C word? <laughs> Your cunting daughter. On, on film. <laughs> Your cunting daughter. On the silver screen. Catholic, the Catholic Church isn't into homosexuality. No. But I don't think that necessarily means that they're okay with derogatory language. No. That's true. Just remember, Steph, we've got to get this podcast favourably reviewed in the Catholic publications so that they listen to us. The best thing that could be done for this podcast is if they denounce it. If the Pope denounces (laughs) it. For faith, Stanley Kubrick once told Stephen King, um, for faith, I guess people have made the case that the exorcist has a message about belief in God and that God exists because if God exists, then the devil has to exist as well. Yeah. So it's sort of promoting that actually there is life after death and... God's around. I don't know where God was in that where God was in that room. But so that's I guess people could see that as reassuring. Is that helpful? I don't think so. I mean, like, Personally. if you believe it, it's good. Good. Probably good helps job. you. That's great. I guess one thing you could say that it was helpful for is it opened up a discussion about science and religion and uh, the fact that it became a bit more of a cultural space to make these discussions about you know, science making more of an impact on the world at the time and where does religion fit with that? Um, for people who are very religious, it might have helped them to come to terms with that. I don't know. I mean, it's just, like, it it, um, it really, like, nicely encapsulates the state of America and, I guess, the Western world at that time where mm. we had lost faith in all of the, those institutions and yeah. we still don't have faith in, you know, like there was Watergate mm-hmm. just then. Um, there's the way that I intonated just then was like I was going to give a list of things, but I don't know enough about <laughs> history to know. give a list of things. There's wars, bombs, <laughs> yeah. shit, Vietnam War. Yeah, so like everybody had lost faith in everything and this movie came out and it really, like, spoke to those anxieties, basically comes down and says, well, we just need to have faith in the institutions we to, again. 
of of the of religion rather than science. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, it is. It is still relevant now because I think it is, you know nobody yeah. trusts these things to this day. And there's still, you know, there's still those pe- those things that happen that we don't always explain. And I'm the Scully. Oh, I think that's all rational, rational, rational for everything. But a lot, a lot of people believe in that um, faith of the unknown. Uh, and what is seen and unseen, so it definitely still has a place mm. in that sense. Mm. But let's talk about whether it was harmful. It created a bit of a contagion effect of people saying that they were possessed. Yeah. So you know, it actually made in, made it into medical journals. Like there's research of people. There was a researcher who looked at four cases who felt that they were being possessed. He determined that they were already in a mentally ill state and the movie was the straw that broke the camel's back. So that's quite a relief to me. Yeah. (laughs) He wasn't like, yeah, you're possessed. I mean, these sort of things, like, I mean, fair enough. There's lots of stories about, you know, something that depicts suicide leads to a spike in suicides and, Mm. I don't know, whatever, things like that. But I also think that people will just incorporate what they see around them yeah. Into their delusions. It's like, 100%. Yeah. You know, it's the same reason that people think that, I don't know, their phones are um, bugging them or yeah, sending them yeah, special yeah. messages or whatever. Yeah. Delusions just kind of move with the times. And I think, though, like this was so popular, it was, you know, Oscar nominated. Given what happens after that as well, the satanic panic turns yeah. on the 80s. There's also other films such as Rosemary's Baby that probably contributed to that as well, which is probably even more of a contributing factor to. The satanic panic because that was very much around people drinking babies' blood and making sac- yeah. sacrifices to the devil, which isn't so much what happens in the exorcism. But this probably contributed to that pattern of mass hysteria. Yeah, like the um, yeah the exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, the Omen, and the Devils. Yeah, were kind of like four really big satanic movies yeah. in the, of this era that. Um, yeah, probably set the stage for that sort of stuff. Yeah. I don't know much about the satanic panic. Well, is there anything specific about, about The Exorcist in Satanic Panic, I'm or just was saying, it just did it just sort of inform? It, I think it just put devil worshiping and devil being, you know, existing more in the forefront. Yeah, sure. Um, some of the things, you know, Reagan engaging with the Ouija board and stuff probably mm. contributed to yeah. young people being involved in that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Satanic Panic was more around baby drinking blood sort of stuff, but. Yeah, anyway, sure. You can read more about that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. You know, when you think about the fact that today that Richard Gallagher has a platform, like yeah. you said before. Does he really have a platform? Oh, like, he, I think it's more a curiosity a lot of, and a bit of a joke. When I read up his book, a lot of people were like, this is great, I loved it. Okay. Um, you know, it, promo- it, it resonates with Catholic people. Orthodox. People living in a Catholic body. Yes. <laughs> One person, uh, there was a review in the New Scientist magazine um, by a trained physician and also comedian, Graham Garden. I hate those guys. (laughs) (laughs) This is from 74, yeah? Yes. Like when it came out. Yeah, Yeah, when it came out. He Mm. argued that the medical scenes were irresponsible Mm. um, in the fact that, you know, we saw the presentation of medical sequences such as squirting, carotid blood, screaming children, badly oiled x-ray equipment that was very disturbing and could have been harmful and irresponsible. This guy calls it irresponsible and then he said it's hardly likely to be welcomed by neurologists. Like who is it irresponsible for? (laughs) Who is he talking about? But honestly, if you'd seen that movie and someone's like, okay, we're going to give you that scan that you mentioned before, I'd be like, fuck no. Yeah. But, you know, I I think um, to its credit, like... It does raise questions about um, patients' autonomy and, like, it does encourage people to ask, like, do I really need this? Mm. Do I really want to go through with this if, at the end of the day, I'm going to need an exorcism? Yeah. Um, And I think it's fair enough. Like, I think that, I, you know, I just think it's part of that tradition that was emerging at that time of questioning institutions where, yeah. like, previously people were like, uh, well, the doctor says it, so I'm going to do it. Mm. I see so many older people in hospital who are like, uh, I'm like, okay, would you like a blood transfusion or not? Here are the benefits, here are the risks. And they're like, I can't make this decision. You're the doctor. You mm. tell me what to do. And it's like, it doesn't work that way to. anymore. Yeah. You, I'm trying to empower you to make this decision for yourself. I think this is, like, 
you know, part, a, a forebear of that kind yeah. of thinking, encouraging people to make their own decisions. I'm I'm good with that. Like I, I I think it's important in terms of that in saying you know people don't necessarily have all the answers. But when it's like, but religion is the answer. Yes. And it's like, well, that sort of falls apart. Yeah, That's absolutely. What, like, I feel like it's it's trying to challenge the binary of science versus religion, but in the end we have to choose religion. So yeah, it's yeah, not really true. challenging it. It's just saying, but God. Yeah, yeah. Which I disagree with. Yeah. <laughs> Personally, I think everyone knows on this podcast that I'm not a religious person. I mean, I just think that for mental health it's really harmful to um, still have some sort of rhetoric when we... You know, historically, way, way, way back when mental illness wasn't understood, there were so many cultures that saw it as demon possession. And we've advanced so much beyond that where we now know it isn't a demon that's possessed you. Uh, it's, a, it's a mental illness and it would have been, you know, anything from anxiety to depression to, you know, um, dissociative identity disorder or... Um, uh, bipolar or, th- you know, anything um, could have been construed in the past as being demon possession. And we have so much more understanding now of mental illness, which is in itself empowering, the treatments that work. We've got a long way to go for everything to be treated. <laughs> um, but a world that is starting to be more inclusive of mental illness so that people can live great lives and full lives. So anything that makes people question that or suggest that there could be actually an outdated view could actually be accurate is harmful to me. On the other hand, on the other just hand. to play Pazuzu's advocate. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. Um, but, you know, I think any time that you're saying, like, this is the one paradigm, you know, mental illness must be treated medically. Mm. It becomes a little bit reductive. I totally agree with that, yes. And, you know, you need to be open-minded, not necessarily open-minded enough that demon possession comes into the equation, but, you know, things like an autoimmune cause of psychosis, Mm -hmm. that should be investigated. Yes. And if it leads to more treatments, amazing. If they did an RCT and they found that exorcism worked in psychosis, well, we just have to throw this conversation out the window and embrace it, you know? Well, that's, and that's the thing uh, Richard Gallagher has said. We can't do any RCTs on, uh, you know, whether exorcism is actually helpful for mental illness because it's not how it works. Actually, Richard, you definitely could. <laughs> and you know what? If you really believe this, I challenge you but to conduct some actually, studies. I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's like, you know, when it's it's the paranormal, it's not about what you see. It's it's all the stuff around it. Like, you can't actually... Um, uh, measure. You can't, yeah, it's not something you can measure. So you'll never be able to measure it, so you can never do a study on it. And it's like, fuck... No. That means it doesn't exist. Hey, Richard, you find some people who you think might be demon-possessed and then you give them exorcists, exorcisms, half of them done by qualified priests, the other half done by actors. Easy. Done. It's your RCT, mate. It's your RCT. Apply for a grant. Get it done. Oh, one last thing I wanted to say as well is, you know, trying to think of anything more recent uh, around exorcism. And did you ever watch John Saffron versus God? I did. Yeah, I did. But I don't remember the exorcism episode. Well, the last episode is an exorcism episode. You can watch it all on YouTube. There's like, it's broken down into parts. Um, and it's quite disturbing. They don't provide any explanation of, of it at the end of the film. And that's kind of it. So, I'll, sorry, context. Um, John Saffron versus God. There's a wonderful comedian slash writer called John Saffron in this uh in Australia, not to be confused with Jonathan Safran Foer, who's an author. (laughs) Um, And he did a series exploring all these different religions. Uh, And his last one, he goes to an exorcist and they exorcise all these demons out of him that he's, you know, collected throughout his travels. And it goes for the whole episode and it looks really traumatic. Mm. And that's probably the last sort of example I can see of anyone actually going through an exorcist, an exorcism, you know, in the last couple of years or whatever, this was like 
20 years ago? Yeah, probably. Um, He hasn't really spoken too much about it afterwards. He did say that he doesn't remember any of it, Mm. remembers very little of it. Um, And there's a suggestion that he was hypnotised. Right. And there's quite a few people after sort of watching it who have experiences who are like, yeah, that's, he's being hypnotised. Ah, okay. But I think there's probably a little bit of that or whatever mm. of you know everyone in the room is distressed or there's a heightened sense of of emotion and there's people screaming at him and to like you know going through a panic attack mm. the whole time that's what it looks like almost yeah. i haven't rewatched it but when i'm having a panic attack i don't quite remember exactly what was going on i remember bits mm. um that you know are almost triggering but you know you, your sense of your, your sense of time and self is very skewed. You're, like, dissociating. Mm. So mm. that could be what's happening. It's very mm. likely to have a, a psychological basis of yeah. what you experienced. Yeah. Final scores. Lived experience, nah. Zero. <laughs> no, it's no one's fault. Nah. I mean, it's not zero. that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, accuracy. Uh, what do we say about this? I, I guess mean, for points the... for medical accuracy and... <laughs> For what it's worth, Catholic accuracy. accuracy. Yeah, well, you know, all the things that they had to do to get the exorcism was accurate. Mm. And so, yeah, a point there. Um, stereotypes. Z- like, negative points. Yeah, negative points. Demon possession. Very much perpetuates lots of negative stereotypes about mental illness. Yeah. Helpful, helpful or harmful? harmful. Uh, overwhelmingly harmful. You think so? You don't think the helpfulness of the discussion outweighs the harmfulness of the mass hysteria that followed? I think it's harmful. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Just playing Pazuzu's app. <laughs> cool. Well, sorry for all those people out there who think that The Exorcist is some sort of beacon of um, mental health awareness. Oh, I'm sure there's so many people out there. I have to say, though, I really enjoyed rewatching it. It's a good movie. I liked it. Mm. I would watch it again. Yeah. It's like all, like all the little things that happened in it that we know now, like how they created... Uh, like pea soup for the vomit <laughs> yeah. and they um, at the beginning um, William Friedkin put like buzzing bees in the background to mm. like give you that sort of you know hair standing on end so edge uh, sort of almost subliminal feeling of unease Yuck. and discomfort yeah. like all those little film techniques just made it mm. a very special film it is a special film but you have to take it away from the context of what it's trying to tell you <laughs> <laughs> Halloween, Michael. Happy Halloween, Steffi. I hope you have a spooky time. Uh, uh, undoubtedly, I will. If you're in my family, you always have a spooky time. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Love you some Levias. <laughs> <laughs>